Welcome back to the Surfacing Leaders Podcast, where you can come along with nuclear submarine officer, sought-after turnaround CEO and founder of Lead with Purpose, Mark Kohler, as he tells the stories of leaders in unlikely places and the human spirit that drives us all to show us that anyone can learn to be a leader. And now, here's Mark Kohler. I want to welcome creativity strategist Natalie Nixon to the Surfacing Leaders podcast. As CEO at Figure Eight Thinking, Natalie advises companies on new ways to reframe their futures by applying wonder, rigor, and foresight to amplify growth and business value. She's a highly sought-after global keynote speaker and award-winning author of the book, The Creativity Leap, Curiosity and Improvisation and Intuition at Work. She's been named one of the top 50 keynote speakers in the world by Real Leaders and has been featured in Forbes, Fast Company, and Inc. Magazine. When she's not dancing up a storm in hip-hop class, Natalie is fine-tuning her foxtrot, salsa, and tango on the ballroom floor. She lives in her hometown of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, with her husband, John Nixon, and is the proud stepmother of Sydney. Natalie received her BA with honors from Vassar College and her PhD from the University of Westminster in London. You can learn more at figure8thinking.com. It's the number eight. And you can follow her at Nat W. Nixon. Natalie, welcome to the Surfacing Leaders podcast. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to be here. All right, so let's get into a little bit of background and take us up till today. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it was actually a little bit full circle. I'm speaking to you from Philly, and I was actually born in Philadelphia at Women's Medical Center. And I have had the great honor, I guess I would really say, to have lived in five different countries. Philly people, we either <laughs> never leave or if we leave, uh, we never come back. <laughs> And I'm part of the critical mass of Philly people who left and came back. And I am a lifelong dancer. These days I study ballroom. I actually have a ballroom dance lesson in the early evening today. And I also dance a lot of hip hop dance. And I'm an avid swimmer. I just discovered last year that I love open water swim. And in terms of my, my career, it's been quite diverse and loopy. I am a creativity strategist. And it turns out all the diverse experiences I've had have made complete sense for this work that I do now. But my background is in cultural anthropology, the fashion industry. I was an academic for 16 years. I was a professor for 16 years. And so that's where my background in design thinking and qualitative research comes into play. And in my business, Figure Eight Thinking, my, my mission in my work is to change lives with ideas. And I do that through the lenses of wonder, rigor, and foresight. And I help companies with questions such as, what's our purpose? What's our next? What's the business that we should be in versus the business we've been churning in? And I love what I do. It doesn't actually feel like work. It's, it's, a, real, it's a real pleasure. Yeah, that's great. I'd love to you know, double click on you know, creativity and innovation and what leaders need to do today, not just leaders, but human beings need to do. And, and talk to us about your philosophy as it relates to innovation and creativity with human beings? Well, I did a lot of work with Fortune 500 firms in the first few years of building figure eight thinking around helping them to build cultures of innovation. And everyone was throwing around the I word. We have to innovate, we have to right. innovate, we have to innovate, right? And sometimes that was starting to look a little bit like innovation theater, which meant that often, it was a siloed space, which is kind of the opposite of innovation, where people, and these are air quotes, played with sticky notes all day, which of course is not what was happening. But I quickly discerned, it wasn't something I said out loud right away, that we were starting in the wrong place if we were trying to build cultures of innovation. Number one, we needed a lingua franca. We needed a common way to talk about it. Everyone had a slightly different way of thinking about innovation. And to that point, I'll share that my definition, Mark, of innovation right. yeah. is that an innovation is an invention converted into scalable value. And that could be social value, financial value, cultural value. But as long as it's a one-off invention, 
it's not an innovation yet. Well, how do you go from a one-off invention to a scalable innovation that really has value on a social, cultural, financial level? That conversion factor is creativity. The challenge was I couldn't very well say in the hallowed halls of corporate America, hey guys, we should be starting with creativity because people from my perspective, didn't really understand creativity. We thought of creativity as something that only artists do well. I would hear murmuring such as, oh, I'm not a creative type because I can't fill in the blank, dance, sing, paint, act, etc." Right. And so that began my quest and my journey to figure out a much simpler way for people to access creativity, everybody, because it's my point of view that to be human is to be hardwired to be creative. And if we want to sustainably and consistently innovate, we've got to build that creative capacity in ourselves as individuals and across the organization. And so it's really important from my perspective that leaders really tap into their own creative capacity and make sure that there's space and time devoted to that for their teams as well. Do you think that's probably one of the biggest misinterpretations of innovation? I mean, when we think of innovation, we think of, oh, Ben Franklin or, you know, and, and all of these like inventors, right? And, and most people, because it feels a little uncomfortable when you're being creative and innovative, I, I have this too. And, and, but understanding that, you know, creativity has certain things with it and like, fail, you know, the, the famous saying Ben Franklin was, you know, failed, you know, whatever, a thousand times to, to figure it out. But is, is that the biggest misinterpretation of, hey, I, d- I just don't have innovation because it feels uncomfortable if people are born with it? What, 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 do, what are your thoughts on that? I think you've nailed it. There is a, I think in, in general, and I'll speak for our society, in American society, there is an allergy to discomfort, an allergy to wrestling with ambiguity, oh, an I allergy. It. I love yeah, it. Yeah, right? And, and you are absolutely right. It's uncomfortable because we don't have the answer right away. Innovation is a super messy process. It is not a linear lockstep process. It's not, it's not a Gantt chart as much as we would like to illustrate it as such. So I think you're absolutely right that a big part of it is that just the way it feels is counter to all the ways we've been educated, right? We've been educated to fill in the blank. Fill in the dot. What is the answer? Give me a solution. We don't tend to be educated, except actually in our more elite educational environments, to explore the process, to fall in love with the problem, right? That seems to be much more of a luxury. But the truth is that there's so much gray when we become leaders, when we're managing a process, when we're in a work environment that's 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 interacting and responding to real market forces that the discomfort, we might as well figure out ways to hack our way through that and to get some comfort with that ambiguity. So I do think that that's one of the reasons why we aren't embracing innovation in the way that I think we should be in creativity in a much grander way. And if I could, I'd like to share the the, the definition that I landed on Absolutely. to help people access creativity, which I think is a simpler way to help me understand. It's not just artists who are creative. And the definition is creativity is our ability to toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. So usually I just stop there. Toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems. But then I'll sometimes also add to solve problems and produce novel meaning and value, right? Meaning, value, and problem solving is, is, what, ye- is what is yielded when we engage in this creative process of talking between wonder and rigor and wonder is about audacity and big blue sky mm. questions like what if, and why not? And pausing, right? You can't wonder when you're going 80 miles an hour. Rigor is about focus and discipline and skill mastery and time on task. And it's not particularly sexy and it's very solitary and it is an essential dimension of any creative process. Any great scientist, engineer, athlete, musical artist, dancer will tell you that they had to spend so many hours, weeks, months, years in the trenches of mastery. You got to know the rules so that you can break them. The great American dancer and choreographer Twyla Tharp famously wrote in her book, The Creative Habit, before you can think out of the box, you must start with a box. Mm. 
right? You got to start by the discipline, the focus, knowing the rules so that you can extend them, stretch them, and sometimes break them. If you were to talk about wonder and rigor, I, I, I agree with that. I think you need this big, you know, wonder thing that you're going towards. And then it's, it's like a big vision. And then it's like, it's, it's the, the rigor and the creative process through it. What do you think most people are naturally better at? And because what we're naturally better at, we sort of go towards, what do you think they're better at wonder or rigor? I think it, I think it's very situational. I think it shifts according to the task at hand, the problem at hand. And I do think it's very personality based. So I think I, I always remind my husband, for example, who is, he does that sexy law, ERISA law that he, you know, he started out writing, you know, big benefits plans for states and companies and, you know, pension benefits plans and 401ks. And now he does a lot of executive comp, but his world is grounded in size two font documents, which would drive me bonkers. He is really good at the details, at the focus, right? Right. But here's how he's so creative. He uses his skill and knowledge of the law in order to be able to understand a problem, which is at the crux of the matter, from all different angles. And that ability to circle the problem from all different angles and perspectives to do a bit of forecasting about if this, then that, there's an incredibly creative process. The rigor comes from his, his natural inclination to be, he loves to plan. He loves to be really focused. He, he's comfortable in the details and the minutia. I am not like, you know, to your point, my, my proclivity is the wonder. I love the big idea space. I love just generating the huge what ifs. And it, and it, 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 I have to be tamed to really buckle down and figure out, okay, let's unpack this. What would it take to get there? Right. Right. And I've learned to do that, but that's been for me a bit more learned behavior. So I do think that it's, it's a personality analogy thing, but we also can get very good at, at, at either one. And it's very situational. It's great. We, we talk about leadership the same way you talk about innovation. We believe every person is born with a leadership toolkit inside and it becomes like, it's a little uncomfortable because there's two pieces to that. We call we talk about leadership and management. It's sort of the same thing of view, wonder, and rigor. And people feel most, most comfortable in the, in the management. Hey, we're going to go climb the mountain and I can put a plan together and we got all the water and, but no one wants to climb the mountain. And then, ah. and then we have the other one where it's like, you know, everyone's ready to run through the wall. And we get halfway up the mountain, we're like, hey, we don't have enough water, you know? <laughs> and so it's this one or the other. And what we found, and sounds like you have the same thing with innovation, because this is really powerful for people who are listening right now, that innovation and creativity sits inside each and every single one of us, but it might be just a little bit uncomfortable and, and you have to be okay with that. We, we say the same thing about leadership as, as you do about innovation. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why do you think, why, what have you observed about, because I've been thinking about this and, we could, you know, part, this may be a slight detour and I apologize if it is, but I just wonder, why do you think we are so uncomfortable with ambiguity and, and uncertainty when in fact, it's what we wake up to every day, right? You know, we have our plans and that's like my, I, I listen, I make my plan every single morning. But, you know, there is in general, it seems like, especially in leadership and the way we even teach management and leadership and business schools, we don't, we don't always plan for the ambiguity and uncertainty. The, just my perspective on it is, uh, ambiguity. You can't, you can't measure the outcome of a lot of stuff has, that has to do with leadership. So leadership, you know, when we talk about empathy and we talk about building a culture and the values, how do you like measure that? I mean, there's this thing called employee engagement. You can go to Gallup's thing and people can answer 12 questions, et cetera. I think it's because you hit it earlier on. The way we grew up was that, hey, we're five years old and, and two plus two equals four. Now, I think that's really important to, to still have us to be able to do that. But this uncomfortableness of not knowing the answer, and if you don't know the answer, you got an F. And, and right. I, think, I think it's ingrained in us. And, and our generation... Like I, I'm, I'm baby boomer Gen X, but 
but I think it's shifting very much so now as it relates to, to Gen Y and, and Gen Z is that we, you and I probably didn't grow up in, in a, a world that's five times faster than it was in the, just in the 1990s. And so Absolutely what not. we have is we have this reluctance to change. Every human being has this reluctance to change. So, you know, we just cling to the thing that we knew, Hey, this is how I ran the company and led the company before. And now I'm in this like environment where I, I can't know every answer. I, I can't be the one who, who everyone comes to. That's not the expectation, but that's what I grew up with. I looked at the person above me and I said, Hey, they have to have the answer, you know, et cetera. So, so I think what's happening right now, it's forcing us because, you know, it, I, I always equate it to, you know, you have your, you have your tires on your car and your car's out of alignment. The, the, the tires are worn. You can either do one of two things. You can replace the tires. They're just going to wear again, which is like, mm. if you place the tires, that's either yourself or employees leave, or you can, <laughs> you can get an alignment. And so mm. it takes a little bit longer to do an alignment. So, so I think, I think it's just the, the human nature that we are uncomfortable with ambiguity. And, you know, one of the things that we teach is this thing called the 4070 principle. Mm-hmm. What we were taught in the submarine force was if, if we had above 40% probability that we were going to make the right decision, we were encouraged to make the decision. And if we waited till above 70, we waited too long. Too long. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I have to tell you, Natalie, it almost broke me. I'm, I'm, I come from my mom and dad both come from Germany. Everything's got to be 90 degrees, not 89.9 and 90. So, so like when I was sitting there, I mean, I remember I, I failed my first qualification watch because I couldn't make a decision. I had too many contacts and I was trying to figure it out. And, and they were like, Hey, you, you have to do something. And, and the, the psychology behind it is we discount ourselves 30%. So when we think we're at 40, we're probably closer to 70. And we think we're at 70, you know, the, and it's not every decision. But today, like what we find is that we teach, that's what we teach. We teach Gen Z and millennial that they love it. The reason they love it is because they're so frozen because it's usually based on experience. It's just like, hey, take a next step and know that your next decision is not your final decision. So that's a long answer. But no, that's, that's what we great. Find. I really, I really love that. And what it makes me think about are several things. One, I believe that we need to broaden the way we're thinking about data. We tend to think about data in a very quantitative way, which is fine. Cool. I got it. And as humans, we are sentient beings. We are signal collectors. We are constantly collecting signals, right? So that 4070 rule about make a decision, research is now showing a correlation between the vagus nerve and the ability to have interoception, which is our ability to sense make that I need to use the bathroom, I'm scared, I'm safe, I'm happy. These are signals that are not actually reactionary. They are actually predictive. They are forecasting something. So that's one that's one set of research I've been I've been reading up about and listening to more lately. The second is that there is research that shows that interoceptive awareness is directly linked to rational cognition. So inter so interoception, so X so Yes, unpack this per- for impact this for right. us. Right. Yeah. Sorry. So perioception is where I am in space. So for them, dancers are really good at figuring out where am I in space, right? Interoception is my internal universe, my internal ecosystem, and this awareness of how I feel and where I am. So here's a quick experiment that was done. They asked people to put their hands on their laps and to tap out their heart rate. And some people were like, are you kidding? I have to put my my hand on my wrist to feel my pulse. And other people were like, okay. And they just tapped out their pulse. And they had a, a married couple do that. The husband was awesome at it. The wife couldn't figure out. She's like, what are you, how do you do that? He's like, can't you do that? You can just, you can feel, right? So, so, so and it's, it's definitely something we can get better at, but that's an example of interoception, the ability to feel what is going on inside. And research is showing that people with really good, high interoceptive awareness are actually, it, it's, also, it's actually related to really great cognition and rational decision-making. So, which leads me to, a lot of what I talk about is that creativity 
which is part of my answer. I should have also said when you said, why do you think we're not engaging in more create creativity and innovation? Part of it is it's fear, part of what we grew up. But, but part of it, the other part of the reason is that it's not something that we practice and it's not something that we uh, take seriously. So we consider it woo-woo. The other thing that you, when you were talking about when I was asking you, why don't we embrace ambiguity? I, I was also thinking, you know, about this incredible book I read decades ago in my twenties. I don't even know how I found this book. It's called First You Have to Row a Little Boat. And it's written, it's a memoir wow. written by a gentleman who grew up on Long Island Sound. And but he basically is taking us through how sailing is a metaphor for life. And if you've ever been out to sea, in which I know you have been out to sea <laughs> in all sorts of ways, there's a lot of ambiguity when you're out. So you got a plan, you got charts, you got your tools, and things can change in it really rapidly, right? So I do think there is something to, there's an opportunity that we have at this moment in time with AI and so much in, in automation and robotics and so much technology taking over basic tasks for us to embrace what makes us uniquely human. I think there's an opportunity for us to engage in other areas of our life where we have to depend on that sense-making ability. And it tends to be when we're, act, excuse me, when we're physically active and moving. If it's some kind of athletic sports ability, for me it's dance, right? When you're going for a walk, where it's just starting to exercise and fire up those different sensors that help us to interact in the world and actually make rational decisions. They, they, they aren't siloed. They're actually quite integrative and interconnected. I love the, you know, obviously anything naval, nautical, you know, I'll probably butcher this, but, you know, we cannot just, we cannot adjust the wind, but we can adjust the sails. And love that. Yeah. And it's, it's that ability to, to be able to do that. So yes, let's stay on creativity and innovation. What is your thought process of, you know, a company has, say they have 2000 employees. How, how do you, how do you start approaching this and, and looking at this with inside of a company? Well, there's a process that I created called the leap method. And I was really inspired by one of the words in the title of my last book, which is called the creativity leap. And the LEAP method is, a, is something that can be scaled from the individual to the team to the organization. And it's a, it's a process that can be implemented in order to begin to amplify and build the creative capacity of the organization. And the L, so each letter stands for phases, four phases. Just to be clear, yes. they're not super linear. It can be very iterative, but let's, let's take it one at a time. Yeah. The L stands for your ability to leverage all that has happened in the past, right? So it's doing a bit of back casting. It's taking stock and inventory. Who are we? What have we achieved? What are our assets in all sorts of dimensions? Sometimes in consulting speak, that's called an audit, right? But it's to leverage what it is, what, what, when I really take stock of myself as an individual, as a team, as an organization, what are our collective assets, right? The E the second phase is about envisioning an audacious future. And that's the piece that we do not take enough time to do in our organizations. We go right to who, what, when, where, how much is going to cost. Let's start doing it. Do you, have you even asked the right question? Have you even allowed, you're cracking up right now. <laughs> well, I'm laughing because you usually say this to like CEOs and they're like, oh yeah, we want to be a billion dollar company. And then it's like, well, who else, you know, that's okay. But who else in your team, you know, when they were five years old said, hey, we want to be a billion dollar company, you know, so. No, right, right, yeah, yeah. right. But 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 the envisioning piece is, it's yeah, it's it's on, I, there's another, I didn't make up this following framework, but I love this framework. It's called, I learned it when I did a lot of work in, de in the design thinking space. What's the functional, social, and emotional problem that we're solving? Love it. Most love companies it. just aim for the functional uh, problem or the functional outcome, billion dollar company, right? You know, X Y Z percentage return to our shareholders, right? Okay, that's fine. Like Amtrak does a pretty good job of you know the functional problem they're solving. Get me from Philly to New York City on time. Most of the time, they solve that problem fine, just just fine. And they're getting better at other dimensions. What's the social problem you're solving? Right. 
How are you connecting people? How do people feel a sense of community, either internally in the organization or externally client-facing? The E is the emotional problem you're solving, the esteem, confidence, squashing fear. Love it. The reason Apple has been such a successful company for so long is that they are solving a problem on a functional, social, and emotional level. So when I talk about the E, envisioning an audacious future, how do you want to envision on a functional level, on a social level, on an emotional level? It matters, folks. It matters, Fortune 100 companies, the Fortune 500 companies. If you are not solving a problem on an emotional level, the best innovations happen when you not only are the trains running on time, not only does the phone turn on when I push the power button, but it's solving a problem for me on a social and emotional level. Anyway, we got to envision really audaciously because you could always edit down. The A. I, I want to jump. I got to jump in here because that was so good. That was so good. And I think. Natalie, you asked me earlier on, like, you know, why don't we look at failure and stuff? We used to just be able to, to, to go functional level. Like 20 years ago, it was just functional level, right? And now we're like, what do you mean social and emotional? So I think, it was, I, think it's, I, I just wanted to, to make sure that the listeners really listen to that. that. That is a piece of gold right there. You can't, this is, it's not a one-legged stool anymore. You need all, no. three, all three of these. I, I love how you express that. Yeah, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible framework. It really speaks to the fact that we're selling to humans, right? We're selling to humans that have needs. I'll tell you something. This is, before I, I share what the A and the P is for Leap, I will share that I, I, you know, I mentioned that part of my background is I worked in the fashion industry. I worked in the fashion industry as an entrepreneurial hat designer at a business called Nat's Hats. And then I worked in global sourcing for a division of the limited brands that took me to live and work in Sri Lanka and Portugal and travel throughout Asia making bras and panties for the Victoria's Secret account. Now, most people who've never worked in fashion think it's either really glamorous or silly and frivolous. Who cares about fashion? Fashion is neither glamorous nor frivolous. It is a business, and it is a business grounded in technology, logistics, design. And the thing that fashion gets really well, that it would behoove so many other sectors to pay attention to, is they pay attention to the role of desire, and beauty mm. and aesthetics as motivators for, pe- for for human consumer behavior. And no one needs another t-shirt in the United States of America. No one needs another pair of jeans, but it's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry because fashion yes. is excellent at paying attention to the, the intrinsic drivers around desire, beauty, and aesthetics, which by the way, they're not frivolous. They matter. It actually is, is, is really important. So anyway, Leverage, envision. The A is about asking. And I tackle that from a few different perspectives. It's about asking for help. It's about self-inquiry. And it's also just about, you know, knowing how to ask different sorts of questions. So after you've taken inventory and taken stock, what can we leverage? You're envisioning this audacious future. Start to ask, how might we do this differently? Asking for help. All sorts of ways we can ask. That goes very deep. The last phase of this process is the P, which is about prototyping. And this is, there are very few companies that actually have a true culture of prototyping. So prototypes are rough draft, ugly mock-ups. The uglier, the better. It can be a scribble scratch on a napkin. It can be a doodle that you take a picture of and you show it around and get feedback on it on your iPhone, your smartphone device, your iPad. It could be a role play interaction that you videotape and you ask, and, and, it sh- and it should be rough. It shouldn't be a glossy PowerPoint because the point of a prototype is to fail early. It's to build, test, learn. It's to get the feedback. It's to get the clarifying questions that you haven't even considered because sometimes we can't clearly communicate what's in our head effectively outside. And also the awesome thing that happens when you prototype in a company is that you get collective buy-in, right? When you ask other people their opinion, how would you make this better? What am I missing here? Does this make sense to you? Well, I'm not really understanding why you put that there and not over here. You know what? That's a really good point. Say more about that. I didn't think about that, right? And you begin to get buy-in and you literally can save not just hundreds of thousands of dollars, but millions of dollars on a project instead of working on it in secret, with a a select committee not talking about it. And there's a big reveal a year later into the marketplace and it 
kind of falls flat because you didn't really build, test, learn all along. So leap is about leverage, envision, ask, and prototype. And that's the system that I use consistently for individuals, for teams, and for companies to help them to move through a creative process and to, to build that muscle. I love the simplicity of it. And uh, I love that it's about, if, if we want people to work on a team, they have to individually have some common skills to, to be able to work with. And the simplicity of it is, is powerful. You touched on something that I really want to dive a little deeper into, and that's the role of failure and creativity. Talk to us about that. Well, I... <laughs> and you might I call mean, it something different than failure, but... Well, you know, if we, if we think of our go-to avatars of who is creative, and, we, and let's say it's an artist... What's really interesting to me about whenever I engage in a conversation with an artist about what are you working on? Oh, what's that? They will say, you know, I don't know. I don't, I, they have no qualms of saying, I don't know how this is going to work out yet. I don't know what the answer is yet. Like they, they literally, it's all about the process and failure is where the diversions happen. It's where the loose threads begin to help you to follow another set of trail of breadcrumbs. It's where the stickiness will happen. It, it, it's, it's as painful and as messy as failure is. It is literally the only way that we learn. And creativity loves constraints. It loves, it, it, it abounds and flourishes when we have to make something out of nothing, when we have to do a detour. One of the reasons why prototyping and experimentation are so powerful is that there are three possible results after a prototype or an experiment. Number one, let's just talk about experiments. Wow, it's a success. L- look at that. It's a go. Let's, we can green light. Let's keep going. Oh, wow. The second uh, uh, option out of an experiment is, man, that bombed. That was a failure. Okay, so what did we learn? And the third thing that can happen at the end of an experiment is, huh, we didn't expect this little thread over here. Let's see where else this could lead, Right. And there's something about calling things an experiment, at least for me, Mark, is that it 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 lowers the stakes. It, it makes me know that it's okay that, that that could be an outcome, that it won't work out, right? And if it doesn't work out, then there's still learning. I'm from Philly. I'm an Eagles fan, even though we haven't been doing that great. And as our quarterback uh, likes to say, there is no learn, there's no win or lose, there's win and learn, Right. We can always, always learn from the mistakes that, that have happened. And creativity then abounds as we're trying to do a new mashup, a remix, a new iteration of something. How do you think your you know, experience, we talked a little bit about fashion and design thinking. How do you think your experience in anthropology and and really has informed your your framework and, and your mindset behind creativity and innovation? Man, anthropology was the, studying anthropology was one of the best decisions I made for my personality, for building my capacity for learning, for always helping me to be curious. And it's a funny story, when I was in college as a sophomore, and called home crying with my first world existential crisis of what am I going to major in? Because I, you know, I didn't want to d- disappoint my parents. They, they sacrificed a lot of money for our education, and I wanted to get a good job at the end. And I called home and asked, "What do you think I should major?" And they said, "Well, what are you, what are you interested in?" And I and I skirted the answer, and I kept talking about what I thought sounded impressive, like economics and political science. I went to a liberal arts college, but I either wasn't interested in those topics or I wasn't really good at them. And um, they said, well, what do you like? And finally, it was literally like a confession. I said, well, I really love these anthropology classes and the Africana studies courses. Oh my gosh, I can look at philosophy and literature. And almost at the same time, my parents said, that's what you should study. And I was like, really? And they said, yeah. And my pop said, Natalie, if you study what you love, you will have to turn down opportunities because no one will have to tell you to stay up later, wake up earlier, you know, be there longer. You will be internally driven. And it was the best advice they gave me. So I studied anthropology and anthropology, unlike the other social sciences, 
has given me the worm's eye view of society. I think sociology, economics, political science, it gives you that bird's eye view, that 30,000 foot level view. It shows you the what. It doesn't tell you why people are doing what they're doing. It doesn't tell you why there's an aggregation of data point X versus point A. When you dive down, on get on the ground, you do observational studies, interviews, contextual inquiry, you begin to understand the nuances of things. So studying anthropology really taught me how to ask questions. It taught me how to observe. It taught me how to, how to go beyond the obvious answer. It is the foundation of so much consumer insight, market research. And it's really, it gave me the tools and framework for me to be an eternally curious person. Yeah, I, I, I love going back into history and even thousands of years ago and seeing innovation and, and that it's inside of each of every single one of us. It's just so powerful. And now the speed of innovation has, has you know, accelerated. Talk to us about AI. I mean, AI, everyone's talking about AI. What's the, what's the impact of AI on innovation and creativity? And how do people, instead of fear... AI, how do they how do they leverage it? Well, I wrote an article for Fast Company called The AI We Didn't See Coming, Artificial Imagination. And really the 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 leaning in that article is that I'm not a, I'm not I don't have a utopian view of of AI and technology. I don't have a dystopian view. I have what my friend Galit Ariel who considers herself a digital hippie. She's an expert in augmented reality. She calls it a heterotopia, right? So here's the, here's the thing. Something like chat GPT is only as good as the questions that you're able to ask it. Even the computer scientists who design the algorithms have to be excellent at observing society, framing and reframing questions. So that ability to hone curiosity and ask questions and question framing is still really important in the midst of that sort of technology. The good news about all of the technology is that it, there's a cognitive offload for, for us because there's so much things that we can do much more, more quickly because of the technology. Now, some companies are saying, cool, that means we don't have to hire as many humans to do X, Y, Z. Well, maybe not so quickly because my perspective, my optimistic perspective, is that we are at a juncture where we can lean into amplifying what makes us uniquely human. AI is outstanding at mimicking our, our human intelligence. It is. It hasn't yet gotten good at mimicking human consciousness. And human consciousness is where memory is is sitting. It's where that whole sentient intelligence that I was talking about earlier and sense-making happens. It's about that connection we have in a room with one another that's based not just on eye contact, it's based on smell, it's based on temperature, it's based on how I'm feeling, right? It's based on memory, it's based on all of these nonverbal cues. And there's something in that skill set and that capacity that the technology needs as a complement. The technology should be our co-pilot. The technology should not be our primary pilot. So I'm an optimist and I'm actually writing a book right now, which is a provocation on a new way to think about productivity, through the lenses of movement, thought, and rest. I call it the motor framework, MTR. And my perspective is that our most productive selves are not when we're churning through email or on Zoom or at the whiteboard, is when we step away and we engage in this motor activity, movement, thought, rest, because of ubiquitous tech, unprecedented burnout, and hybrid work, we've got to amplify what makes us uniquely human. The way we think about productivity hasn't shifted since the first industrial revolution. It's still based on outputs, time-based, metrics-based, and micromanagement. And that model, we have an opportunity to shift that model, a model of macro management, which needs what? Trust, right? Where I, I'm trusting that the output is going to be stellar because I trust you. I'm giving you time with your family. I'm giving you time to live. We, the, we know that when we, after we come back from a walk, 
when we're first waking up after a really good deep rest, after a shower, that's when the best juicy generative ideas come. There's different neurosynapses that get wired, right? So the COVID-19 pandemic was a test run. It would kind of accelerate it the ability to really explore this. And, and some of us, some companies kind of dabbled with it and others didn't. And, and it's understandable why it hasn't been a big takeoff. It's hard, right? It's hard to change. But I think the, optis, the optimist in me appreciates how the technology that we have can offload a lot of the, the cognitive load that we typically had. But but what does that mean? Hopefully more time for imagination, for deeper curiosity, for deeper human connection, so that we can feed into the tech the, the new questions in order to innovate for greater impact for humankind. That that for me is is the opportunity. It's so counterintuitive. You know, when I'm grinding at something, I'm like, okay, repeat it again. Like the Navy taught me that. Right. Repeat. That's the rigor. Yeah, repeat, repeat, repeat. But I have to remind myself, and I have a team around me that reminds me, hey, you got to take today off. Like you, you're on four hours of sleep and you've been grinding at this. And I, I have to tell you, and I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, on, you know, because you're going to do your book, Productivity, on the neuroscience behind it. Sh- share with us, because, you know, a lot of leaders, the speed of business increased tremendously. And the grit factor that's in every single leader is I'm going to use the same approach. I'm just going to work 11 hours. And, and they, they, they don't know that, hey, last year you're working 11, now you're working 12. And, and it's like clicking on the, the treadmill. You know, it's just, it's this slow, you know, increase. So, so talk to us about some, some of the stuff as it relates to needing to be able to do that. And you talked about micromanagement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of all of that stuff. And it's this load that we take on ourselves, but talk to us about the science, a little bit more science. You, t- you touched on a little bit, but talk to us more about the, that, that ability to slow down in the curve and what it does for our brains. Well, I'm still learning myself about the neuroscience of this, but what, what I, what I, what I can share is that, you know, there's that great book whose author I need to Google. It's called the body keeps the score. You know, there, there's scientists much smarter than me where they've proven, uh, sorry, it's, it's by Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, The Body Keeps the Score. If you do not sit your behind down and rest, your body will break down. Your body will tell you to. So there's different hacks that we can do, right? So for example, I have this five minute sand timer. It's just oh, awesome. a little lovelier and prettier than I could put put it on my iPhone. And I sometimes do if I'm not at home, but you know, you turn it over and it's just, it's not for six minutes, just for five minutes. And I'm a big defender of daydreaming, not meditation. I find meditating very hard actually, because you have to keep focusing, keep focusing, but give me your, your brain permission to wander. And in that five minutes, as that sand is, is just going down through that timer, man, I'm listening to, you know, in the quiet of the house, that's what the boiler sounds like. Oh, there's a raindrops from the rain earlier this morning, just still trickling down the window. It's allowing, you must hack that time. You must design space and time for that rest. And this is, as I've been working on this book and I'm still at the early stages of it, it's been very important for me to make sure that I have an inclusive conversation about this. And what I mean by that is it's easy for me to say as a white collar professional that, you know, I have a lot, I have a lot of agency in my day. What if I, you know, I've been watching the great documentary on Netflix working that former president Barack Obama narrates. He, and it starts out by looking at a woman who was a maid at a luxury hotel in Manhattan. Right. A woman who is a home healthcare aide in Mississippi, taking care of elderly people she doesn't know, and all happen to be women. The first examples: a woman who drives for Uber Eats in Pittsburgh. What does taking time for movement, think and rest, look for people who don't have as much agency over their day? That matters to me. That I figure out how to address that. 
how how to at, at minimum for managers to be thinking about that because we do know that happier people are more productive. They have the best interest of your company in mind. It behooves you to make sure that you're not treating humans like cogs in the wheel left over from the first industrial revolution. So those are the sorts of questions that I'm thinking about as I as I am learning about you know what the neuroscience is saying about different neurosynapses that that are in our default mode network, right? The reason why when we wake up or after a shower or after a great walk that we seem to have these great aha moments is the default mode network in our brain is more activated. The spine is an extension of the brain. We're designed to move, Love right? It. It's an extension yeah. of the medulla oblongata. So the longer we're sitting at our laptop, hunched over, we're blocking oxygen flow to the brain. They, there's, there's, you know, studies about all the great thinkers like Thoreau and Einstein. They walked, they walked every day. And uh, there, there was correlation for them to when they returned to the work at hand of it being much more generative. So that's the opportunity that I hope that companies will take seriously. What has that? That was really, really good because I, I find the same thing. You know, I am, I, I'm sitting here grinding, and then I find when I finally step away, which is hard to do because I, I want I have this thought that, Hey, if I continue to grind, it'll be better. And when I come back and then it just automatically, you know, if I'm maybe preparing for a keynote or talking to a client, it's, it's amazing what happens. And it's, it's really scheduling that time, that space, you know, like you said. Yeah. I I think, I think as companies and leaders, we need to generate super interesting. What if questions around movement, thought and rest part of the book. I want to, I want to propose some of those questions you know, like what, what if we had a moratorium on email responses, you know, let's start one morning a week, let's do it from 9am to 11am. What if we did that? What if we had recess? Kids have recess. There's a reason why kids love gym and recess. And we think, oh gosh, won't they be a little bit more serious about math class and, right. and language class and science class? There's a reason why they love to move, to connect socially with one another, and then to go back Right? What if? Why do we get rid of that? We know that play taps into all the executive functioning skills we need for leadership. Play requires you to be able to collaborate, to actively listen, to be able to negotiate, to be able to share, to be able to do all the things that we expect leaders to do. So why don't we add a bit of laughter and joy into that? And I'm not talking about just having a ping pong table in the corner of, 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 of the fifth floor. I don't like role play. When, when you laugh, you're present. You're listening. Right. So we have an opportunity to do things differently. And I'm hoping that the book I'm writing, it comes out in 2025, that that it will be one contribution to help people to do that. On a scale of one to 10, how important is creativity and innovation in a company today? 15, 20, if, if, you know, the World Economic Forum. So... Twenty in 2015, the World Economic Forum ranked creativity as the number ten job skill that would be important by 2020 and beyond. That was in 2015. Mm-hmm. One year later, in 2016, they said, "Hang on, we actually think now the creativity is going to rank as the number three job skill for 2020 and beyond." Last year in 2023, the World Economic Forum ranked creativity as the number two job skill. So it's creeping up there. And by the way. Back when they said it was number three, job skills numbers one and two were were problem solving and critical thinking, which PS is all part of creativity, right? right? right. So create so so we are increasingly becoming aware that creativity. So I talk about creativity as toggling between wonder and rigor to solve problems and produce novel value and meaning. Another way to think about creativity is that it's about the juxtaposition of two things that people never previously thought to put together. It's about the great mashup. All the great companies that we think of did a mashup of two things that we never, you know, once upon a time, someone said, a couple people said, more than a couple people said, what if we fueled cars through electricity instead of petrol? And some people laughed those people out the room and other people said, say more about that. Now, Elon Musk was has been one of the first people to be able to successfully monetize that at scale. But a lot of other people were asking that question, right? 
So pay attention to what we can juxtapose and and what are the the remixes and the mashups that we can do? Hip hop music is the number one music in the world today. I am I am a solid Gen Xer. My husband, like you, Mark, is bridging Gen X and and Boomers. But I was living in New York City in the early '90s during the time of the birth of hip hop. Wow, wow! And when you think about in the 1980s yeah. when hip hop started, it it was poor African American teenage guys who took a technology called the turntable. They didn't, you know, this was correlated to music education, funding for music education plummeting in public school environments. That was, that funding was plummeting. And they took something, they did a mashup, a remix. And they said, well, this is interesting. This needle scratching on this vinyl, this is creating some kind of percussive rhythm. What might we do with this? We are really poets at heart. But being a poet isn't cool, so we rap, right? We have we have this incredible. I mean, when they do mind mapping of jazz musicians improvising, hip hop artists mm. rapping, comedians doing improv, the brain is just a fire. It's just a light. it's that juxtaposition, juxtaposition that remix. Who would have thought that juxtaposition would have produced one of the largest musical industry sectors in the world today, you know, across, across uh, cultures. So anyway, it ranks like number 20 and it's score one to 10 of how important it is to me. That's, that's great. I, I love that. I knew, I, I knew it was going to be above 10. So yeah. 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 So that's great. Talk to us about, you know, you, you are, uh, you know, you're a woman obviously, and uh, I have three daughters. So I always, I always, you know, look at the world that they live in. And, you know, we, we talk about, you know, past stereotypes and, Hey, this is what you have to do. I, I just think it's so hard. I don't understand it. I think it's so hard to go, Hey, it's either one or the other. I got to either be, you know, I can either have a family or I can do this and I have to do both. And, you know, so I'd love you to share your perspective on that. How have you been able to, to navigate that? Wow. Yeah. You know, I think women can do anything that we want, but we can't do it all well, mainly because we don't get to have wives. <laughs> right. right. So that makes it really hard. Yeah. Hi um, Heidi, Heidi, who is my wife, would, and I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I, she's my COO. I mean, I, you know. Yeah. 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 So. You know, I, I, I'm, I, I was born in 1969. I grew up in the 70s and the 80s. My parents made a choice. My mom stayed home with us for the majority of our childhood she started she, she re-entered the re-entered the workforce when we were like tweens teens and it was so hard my mother ended up being an executive assistant at Merck I she's college she's a college educated woman I saw what she went through of how people underestimated her to this day I pay the utmost respect to executive assistants because I know that they are the primary COOs and gatekeepers to the the executives that they are helping. I personally have a stepdaughter. I don't have my own biological children. I always wanted like a, a family of five. It's just not how it worked out for me. But I see among my peers, you know, if if women who were boomers were telling us you can have it all, Gen X women, we we were the women who brought pumping into the workplace. We're now the women who are talking very publicly and openly about menopause. We have normalized conversations that were whispered. And, and we, we were the ones who said, yeah, I have a master's degree and I'm going to, I want to stay home with my kids now. Right. So, so we were the generation that had, we got to the place where we kind of air quotes had it all. And some of the boomer age generation got a little pissed off at us. They're like, what are you doing? You can't right. walk away now. And we're like, but Right. Isn't that the point that I have options that I have choices? So right. and I'm curious to see what, you know, our daughter is 23 years old. She's a, a Gen Zer, a centennial and curious to see what they do. You know, what's interesting. There is actually this, I don't know if we can call it a trend or if it's still just a signal, but there are women who are Gen Zer, centennials who are opting in 
to getting sterilized. They do not want to have children and they're right. in their 20s. And they're saying, this is a world that I do not want to bring children into. Sure. So again, and that that's very foreign to me, right? So, so I think that we have to give each other the grace to you know honor the the choices each of us are making. We certainly have the technology now where women can become mothers, you know, opt into to being mothers with with without a partner of a partner of, of however they they choose to define that. And I and I think that's really important. Yeah, I love the the flex, the flex work work remote. You know, big fan of that and. Because, you know, like right now, my, my wife was a stay-at-home mom, and we made that decision too. But that's what I grew up with. That's what she grew up with. And it was, you know, it was the best investment in the world that we did. But now she's trying to find her purpose. You know, right. empty nest, and she and, you know, her sister did the same thing. And so they're, 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 they're trying, to, trying to figure that out. So there's so, I think there's so much more opportunity, and there's so much more openness. But, you know, we have to all continue driving that the, the, those opportunities, you know, are, are definitely available. I, I have a couple more questions for you. Talk to us about, we've, you know, we've talked about creativity and innovation as it relates to primarily business aspect. Talk to us about what that means for people in their personal life, maybe their family life. Talk to us about how, how do we, you know, use this great gift that we have in other areas. Before I answer that question, I'm going to have to ask you to repeat the question. I just wanted to share a statistic related oh, yeah. to your last question about, uh, sure. about women and gender. And this comes from a website called prowessproject.com. It's, it's a great company called that that basically offers to smaller size business, businesses the role of an online business manager. And they tend to they have a certification oh, process yeah. and they tend to onboard and hire women. But here's the, the statistic that they, they shared on their website. 43% of caregivers who are mostly women leave the workforce to raise children. And when they are out for just three years, they lose up to 37% of their total compensation power forever. 37%, more than a third of your comp ability right. is gone after just spending three years out of the workplace to take care of children or, or to take care of an aging parent or whatever yeah. it is, right? So so there's a real cost-benefit analysis to that. So just wanted to add that statistic. I thought that was really impactful. No, thank you. And and with the, you know, 30 years ago, it might not have, it might not have been three years, it might've been 10 years, but the speed of business exactly. and the speed of, you know, they're saying that certain jobs in six years, 40% aren't going to be even around. It's it's like yes. unbelievable. So, so definitely thanks for sharing that. The other question that I, I asked was, we've been talking about this more from the perspective of business and creativity and innovation. Talk to us about how we can apply this to the other areas of our life, you know, for us personally and then for, for our families. Well, I actually think that's such an important question because work is increasingly inside out. And what I mean by that is the best leaders are going to be the ones that can speak to and connect to us on a personal level, that are curious about us on a personal level. And any opportunity that you have to build your creative capacity outside of work is actually going to add value to the work that you do. So I'll give a personal example. Yeah. I mentioned that I study ballroom dance. I started to study ballroom dance for an oddball reason. I was single at the time and I thought to myself, I'd like to be married one day. I think I'm a decent leader, but probably in a marriage every now and then I'll have to be a good follower and I don't think I'm a good follower. So how could I be a better follower? I had at least that amount of self-awareness and I marinated on that for like three months. And then one day I was like, oh, I know I'll, I'll try tango because a little bit I knew about tango, the follower typically the woman doesn't have to be, must, you must follow, like you jack it up if you do not follow, like it will be botched up. So that's how I got into ballroom dance. But one what of the is, things What does John say about your ballroom dance? Is he, is he a leader? Oh, that's... he's not convinced that it's, it's sticking, it's taking on. Okay, got it. Some okay. days I'm better than other days. Okay. But, <laughs> but, but ballroom, like the, the class I'm going to tonight, we're, we're rehearsing a West Coast swing choreography that we're working on me and my and my instructor and me. And then I'm going to a group lesson afterward. 
there's several things that happen. They're actually related to the three I framework that I, I don't know if I shared that earlier, but the way you can consistently toggle between wonder and rigor to solve problems is through inquiry, improvisation, and intuition. When I'm in dance class, I have to get, there has to be no shame to my game. I must humble myself to raise my hand and say, I don't understand that. Like, could you, could you do that again? Right? So the inquiry piece really gets accentuated. My ability to ask questions, my willingness to ask questions. Improvisation. Dance is so improvisational, right? There's, there's the, there's the steps and the, and the movement, but, but there's all the interstices and the inter, and the inter between bits. Then the intuition. There, my, my instructor Nadari, who's from Azerbaijan, he is constantly telling me, you are overthinking this. You, you, I saw in you, you were, you were about to do it and you stopped. Why did you stop? You don't act here the way you act in your job. I was like, okay, okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Right. So what happens is that we are fine tuning that muscle of whatever it is for you, if it's chess playing, if it's mechanics, if it's gardening, trust me, there are ways that you are deploying more inquiry, more improvisation and more intuition. So what does that have to do with work? Well, the first time I started noticing the difference was I was on a client call and they were bantering about all these acronyms. And I thought, I don't know what they're talking about. I should probably know what they're talking about. So finally, I just said, well, I'm just going to ask because I, I, I don't understand. So I said, excuse me, I'm just wondering, what do you mean by the ABC of the XYZ? And they said, uh, wait, that's a good, wait, what does that stand for? Like they didn't even know they had to stop themselves. And, you know, when you ask a question, the world will not come to a screeching halt. But being a student of something, being a clumsy student of something is so important. So in our personal lives, we must be a clumsy student of something that will help to accentuate the wonder and the rigor that will help us, you know, really dive into those three eyes because it will make you a better question asker, a better experimenter, better at listening to your intuition when you're on the job. I love that term that you use clumsy because we ah. hear, we are clumsy as, as negative and, and what I, what, what's the saying, you know, when you stumble in the dance or what, I forgot what the saying, when you stumble, uh, make it well, part there's of, a lot of, make it part of oh, the yeah, dance. Well, no, one, no one, no one knows you make it, made a mistake except unless you show it, unless yeah. you react to it. Nobody knows. By the way, walking is controlled falling. And dancing is just controlled falling in multiple directions, telling a story, you know, that that's all it is. That's awesome. All right. So I have a, I have a question for you, you know, for people who are listening now, if we were to, you know, summarize up, Hey, what's one thing that I can take away from this that would, you know, help to surface, you know, the leader or the innovator inside of side of me, the listener, what, what is it that you would share? I think I really go back to how important it is to ask questions and starting with self-inquiry of asking ourselves, why, why not? What if an even bigger question, what if I don't, right? What if I don't try X, Y, Z? And then when we think about inquiry and question asking as it relates to our team's what not to do is don't say to your team, hey, guys, I welcome all your questions. You'll probably get hands on the hips or deer in the headlights. You have to model it. You have to be willing to share your own questions you have about a process, about something we've been doing for the past 17 years about, right? So by modeling it, it, it gives other people that that courage. There's a, there's a little doodle in a frame that I have on my bookshelf. It's a quote from a movie which is that you've got to be brave before you can be good. You've got to be brave before you can be good. You got to be brave enough to raise your hand. You got to be brave enough to try the experiment. You got to be brave enough to make the mistake before you can be good. And that's, you know, that bravery before mastery quote is also relevant there. But as, asking questions is a way to get to that. And it's learned behavior. We can all get better at it. That's great. Where can our audience connect with you, learn more, interact with you? Um, I'd love, well, first of all, thank you again for having me on your, on your show. Thanks for all the great questions. And thank you for asking me that. People can stay in touch with me by going to figure8thinking.com. That's the number eight, not spelled out. 
and I welcome people to join the Ever Wonder newsletter. Sign up, subscribe to that. Follow me on LinkedIn. I put a ton of content out on LinkedIn. I share a lot of content in my newsletter. I also have a newsletter that goes out on LinkedIn. So please follow me on LinkedIn, sign up for my newsletter. And you can also follow me on Instagram at Nat W. Nixon, where I share a lot more of my personal life on Instagram than I do on LinkedIn. I love on your site, it says at the bottom of every page, ever wonder. Yes. <laughs> great. It's just, it's just great. Thank well, you. Natalie, thank you so much for your time today. It was a fantastic conversation. You know, if I were to really wrap it up, the, the, the lessons and learnings of your tremendous life's journey, you know, this combination of anthropology and fashion and design thinking, how you were able to weave it into this simple framework and formula of wonder and rigor. And, and the last piece that you talked about is, is let's be brave. It was, it was really, really fantastic. So thanks again for being on our podcast. You're welcome. And thank you very much for having me. Thanks for joining Mark today. And remember, new episodes of Surfacing Leaders will be available every other week where you can become inspired, gain confidence, and learn leadership right where you are. Until next time, make it a great day.